I loved the XLR cable with all my heart. I sang songs to it. I wrote impassioned sonnets and love letters. I bought the XLR cable nice jewelry and took it out to four-star restaurants that were within my meager but romantically inclined budget. When the XLR cable cried, I held its plug against my shoulders, soothing it, protecting it from the electrical forces of the earth. The XLR cable and I cuddled in bed. Like any relationship, there were good times and bad. But when I showed up to conduct an interview with a distinguished literary author, the XLR cable would not work. The XLR cable had left me for another sound man. So this explains the sudden whoops and whacks and strange sounds you'll hear during the following discussion. The XLR cable betrayed me, and yes, dear listeners, I cried for days and started up therapy again, but it did not betray this conversation. Okay, so I am here with Marilyn Robinson, who is the author of Housekeeping Gilead and most recently home. Marilyn, how are you doing? Very well, thanks. First off, uh, I wanted to ask you uh, a more basic question about these two books. You've revisited the events of Gilead with this book, Home, and I'm wondering if Lawrence Durrell's Alexandria Quartet may have been on the mind, or whether this was your way of offering a New Testament to the Old Testament of Gilead, or perhaps vice versa. That's a very interesting question. Frankly, um, the only thing that was really on my mind was the feeling that there were things that I wanted to explore in these characters that I had not... I actually didn't intend to write a second book set in Gilead and so on, but the characters were so strongly in my mind. And then, you know, that, that's more a question of exploring what is interesting to you than imposing an intention on it. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of this idea of uh, revisiting it from a different perspective, were there any other literary antecedents that you consulted? It was this largely an intuitive process for you because there were these side characters that were inhabiting the... Uh, the crevices of Gilead, and uh, they needed to uh, have their own particular story. And in addition to that, uh, well, you have the this entire family that has an entirely different approach to faith, and an entirely different approach to uh, living and coming to terms with uh, other people and fracas and all that. Yes, it's it was intuitive. I didn't have any model in mind. The only thing um, I didn't like the idea of a sequel. It yeah. seems to me that there's something a little bit spent about a sequel. You know. I, I've never intended to write one, but I realized I could write another Gilead book that, that did not have the character of a sequel. Well, I wanted to ask you uh, about the tale of the prodigal son, which, of course, comes from Luke fifteen eleven. The onus of guilt in that parable, however, falls largely upon the son. Now, in the, specifically, the quote is, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy higher servants. But Jack... He calls his father Sir, not Dad, although uh, there is a slight discrepancy near the end. Uh, He works on the DeSoto of his own accord. Uh, He's often summoned to play on the piano and the like and also work in the garden. But he's uh, sometimes an unapologetic sinner, and at other times he drowns his sorrows in alcohol. So the interesting question here about the prodigal son is, well... The framework of the scripture is clearly there in this book, but I'm curious as to uh, where you decided to launch away from that. And likewise, uh, well, was it actually a starting point, or was it, again, largely this intuitive process of trying to avert what we know about that particular story from Luke? Well, I I have a slightly different interpretation, I think, of that story than than the one that's generally circulated. I think so. You notice the the prodigal son says, I am no longer worthy to be called thy son. But from the father's point of view, this is never an issue. He he doesn't ask for the son's for the, the son to 
he, you know, he doesn't ask for the son to satisfy any standards of his. He doesn't ask for confession. He doesn't ask for some plea for forgiveness. He, he sees his son coming from a distance and runs to meet him before he knows anything about him except that he's his son coming home. And I think that the point of the parable really is, is grace rather than forgiveness. The fact that the father is always the father, despite and without conditions. And um, this is true in, in Boughton's case. As far as he's concerned, Jack is his son, and that's the beginning and the end of it. You know, Jack is, well, Jack is not um, able to, to accept his father's embrace. You know. It's basically approaching a parable or a well-known story from a kind of uh, cockeyed manner. I mean, really, it comes down to this notion of the text as scripture. I think uh, certainly in Gilead that was the case. And in this case, you actually have them throwing away letters. Uh, you have, of course, the love letters that are thrown down the drain, the letters that uh, Jack sends out, which uh, come back returned to sender. Uh, and, of course, they're uh, schlepping off a number of magazines to, of course, uh, Ames, uh, who lives down the block. And so this was very interesting to me that, that whereas the first book dealt explicitly with the idea of text as this panacea for loneliness. This book deals with completely <laughs> disseminating the text out to other people or getting rid of text, uh, which is why I kind of asked the question about how this relates to scripture. Is text really something for us to cling on to in this, whether it be a book or whether it be the Bible, whether it be religious or literary or whatnot? There are matters of interpretation in life that go well beyond text and well beyond the idea of uh, fulfilling uh, this need to cure loneliness. Well, I, I think of text, you know, I mean, by the analogy to scripture that you're making, I think of it as something that is sort of lively and disturbing, disruptive, you know. I mean, for example, say that Ames' best hopes are met and his son receives the voice of his father when his son is an adult. That would be a, that would completely jar, you, once, you, you know, the, the sense of memory, the sense of of proximity to another human person, all kinds of things that we think we understand. In all, you know, I mean, the, the letters that come to Jack or the letters that don't come to him are, they're, they're central, they're alive, even though they are profoundly problematic, you know. And I think that in a way, I think of text and scripture as, as active in that way, as a sort of uh, an eccentric presence in, in human experience. Yeah. But it's also interesting because... All of these characters in the Gilead universe, I'll just refer to it as that, uh, have this need to really affirm their identities or their meaning in the place of many small details going on, uh, whether it be generating volumes of sermons. I mean, it could be argued that, that Jack may very well be generating volumes of letters. We don't know how many letters that he's actually exactly. uh, generated. So this is why this, this question of, uh, of essentially waiting around, writing as opposed to living and seizing the day is, is something I think that is quite important in both of these books. In a sense, uh, perhaps, I don't know. I mean, what, what Ames is trying to seize, of course, is the fact that he is the father of a son, yeah. Yeah. you know, even though the chronologies of their lives would seem to undercut that in very serious ways. Um, I think that, I, I mean, I assume, and it's important to me to assume it, that people have intense interior lives that they might or might not commit to to, to text or to music or to whatever, um, that seizing the day, the day is something that has a much larger definition than the externalized aspects of sort of ordinary life, you know. Um, 
And so, I mean, we don't know what Jack wrote in those letters. It might have been a lot of theology, for all we know, you know, because... Um, but, it, I mean, because he his life is, in a sense, troubled by the same... by text, in the same way that I was talking about before, yeah. you know. On the subway here, I saw a gentleman wearing a T-shirt with the Bob Marley line, My Home is in My Mind. And immediately, this suggested uh, the notion of the home in this book being in the characters' minds, and likewise, this idea of you can't go home again is uh, trying to sort of get into these patterns of, of reclaiming some Edenic-like experience. In light of the idea that the home is in the characters' minds, and that there is this interior that you're talking about, I guess I wanted to ask you about the notion of how you subverted home in this, in relation also to the, the idea of home that is, of course, in housekeeping, where things are presented in this rather level uh, experience that every description of the homes in housekeeping is related explicitly to where it stands in relationship to the landscape, which I find very interesting because in these latter two books, well, we know that Ames has the second floor study in Gilead, and we know in Home that, uh, of course, Jack is toiling in the basement on this DeSoto. So, so what of this idea of the home both as being something within the mind as opposed to likewise being part of this landscape of the plains in Iowa that uh, one has to either artificially uh, rise above or rise below or, or really it's the great sort of joke here that really it's it's very much an interior experience and these artificial gradations whether going below or going above are largely uh, I guess cerebral in some sense. I, I certainly, I think everything's cerebral, frankly. I mean, the word home is a value-charged word. It doesn't mean house, you know. It doesn't mean address. And, um, you know, I mean, all of them, one of the things that was, I'm always doing sort of little inquiries on my own just because something piques my curiosity. And, and uh, for a while I was um, listening to um, anything that I could find that was classic, I mean, traditional American hymnody, especially vernacular hymns. And one of the things that is very striking in them is that they, they almost inevitably refer to heaven as home. And the idea that, I mean, that's an acknowledgement on the one hand that it's profoundly meaningful, and on the other hand that it's a hope or an idealization at the same time, you know. And I think that um, anyone who has the concept home sort of cherishes the idea that you can go there and certain things will be alleviated and certain things will be perhaps forgiven and certain shelter will be found and in an unconditional way, you know. Um, and of course, this is a, a hope and an idea more, more reliably than it's an experience that you can actually have, you know. Um, that, so, I'm, I mean, I consider home to be a to be an idea that's largely uh, cultural and emotional, cerebral, you know. Yeah, well, certainly, but there is also this experience you're suggesting here with sound, which I actually want to get into, because, of course, Ames in Gilead is very much listening to the radio as a susurrus. He latches on to that particular word uh, and finds great delight in it. And in this, we also likewise see 
well, the piano that Jack plays, where uh, essentially he's playing the hymn for his father, but he's not necessarily going to sing that particular hymn. And this, this, the interesting suggestion on, on your part here, and again, this goes into a question likewise about third person versus first person, which we'll get into later, but the idea here is that's fascinating to me, is that music is almost the great common ground, that people need to hear something in order to, I guess, latch their minds upon the notion of home or what their familial relationships are or how they empathize with their fellow families and their friends. And likewise, uh, this notion of quiet solicitude as well, which uh, another question, but I look but to dwell on the notion of how music is almost the sort of uh, the, the Proustian-like uh, smell almost that brings people uh, together like this. What? Well, you know, I don't know too much about how experience is, re- you know, stored and retrieved and integrated and so on, but I do, I do feel very strongly that that language is a modification of music, yeah. and or they are simultaneous with each other, and that um, uh, probably one of the reasons for music from the beginning was that it is mnemonic, you know, that it's. I mean, you know, we, maybe Homer's poetry was sung, you know. Um, maybe and we know the psalms were you know um, that that there's we create an enormous amount of nuance and also uh, we store a great deal of memory in language that is associated with music I mean virtually any tradition I know of does that you know it seems to be just um, a part of the way that we make ourselves at home a huge part of the way that we individually know the world well, the other thing, too, is uh, words like just that uh, Ames, of course, banishes from his vocabulary. You have likewise banished. I have not. I did not see a just. I actually read uh, home <laughs> hoping that I would find a just or whatnot or any of his uh, so-called crutch words. Uh, when you plan a sentence like this, when you dwell on these mnemonic indicators of what the lay of the land is, so to speak, I mean... Are there certain words that you will go out of your way to avoid like this? Was this commentary, uh, Ames's uh, banning of certain words, a kind of commentary on your own close attention to your own sentences? Or? I think that any writer has to struggle with, you know, the word that comes up too often, yeah. or very, or little, or... I, there are words, little nonsense words like that, you know, that I go through and cross out because I can rely on myself to overuse them. And I hope that I cross out enough of them. I mean, I'm wondering what an initial sentence in an initial draft looks like for you. How much do you cross things out? Is it a matter of honing it down to the essential components? I've always been curious because your sentences are very taut and compact and the like. Well, it, you know, it, 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 some, some sentences come very readily to me and are taught from the beginning. A lot of them I have to sort of run through my mind. That's what I really do. That's where most of the revision occurs. And it is how it sounds how it sounds um, aesthetically I'm committed to the idea that there ought not to be any words that are not weight bearing essentially um, and that's that's what I use to eliminate, that's the standard I use to eliminate in essential language I also wanted to ask you about uh, one common character trait in all three of these novels the woman who is in her late 30s I had mentioned quiet solicitude earlier on but it seems to me that, for example, Lucille in Housekeeping and Lila and Gilead and in Home, Glory, they all have this idea of essentially using this notion of silence with which to access a deeper humanism for the people who they care about. 
Uh, and it's just buried under the scenes. But the thing that is interesting about this is that educational background has become more of a concern for this concern of yours. Uh, we learn, of course, with Glory that she has a master's degree and the like, and that she was also a teacher. I wondering how this originated or why you keep returning to this particular theme. Uh, is it something about the idea of uh, observing and staying silent and uh, knowing exactly when to interject one's presence towards another that uh, this is really the deeper question of faith more so than the uh, where one stands in relation to the scripture or where one stands in relation to a particular branch of religion or whatnot? I think that, I think that that's a good association you've made there. Um, I think that one of the, you know, tact is attentiveness. And very often the kindest thing you can do is not speak or not act, you know, uh, to, to allow people the sort of integrity of their own re- reactions, their own emotions, and so on. Um, I think that this is easy to observe in human interactions, but, but not much represented in terms of how they are, you know, written about and so on. Why this specific figure, a woman in her late 30s, who seems to be the ideal person with which to deploy this quiet solicitude? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Something's just happened, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you about the food that's at the, uh, the Bowton Enclave. Uh, much of the food is, in fact, circular or elliptical in its nature. You have pies, which are perhaps pious in some sense. You have... Uh, The apple, of course, which suggested to me something going back to the Garden of Eden. But additionally, the the fascinating thing about this family is that they eat a lot of their things cold, whether it's chicken, whether it's uh, old uh, Bowden eating cold soup, or whether it's Jack settling with cold coffee. Uh, I'm wondering the the extent of thought you gave to the food, which, again, I, I just kept thinking to myself, oh, it, it's an egg, it's elliptical. I just, it, it represents this circular, uh, this cycle that these, this family is trapped in of repeating themselves, of, of the 20 years that Jack is away uh, essentially replaying itself out within the context of uh, 1956 events. But I wanted to ask you about how food, uh, this motif, uh, was, came to reflect this, or whether I'm possibly reading a lot more into it than, than you ever anticipated. Well, I think I might call you ingenious. <laughs> <laughs> I um, when I was a child, and you know the the sort of food customs of families depended basically on the mother or the grandmother, you know, um, and the, in a way the family culture was built around what they enjoyed, what was prepared for them, you know, the rituals of eating together, and um, in order to sort of recover the sense of a you know pre contemporary household. I was, you know, sort of recovering the sense of what, it, what, what life was like when it depended on one or two people in a household to determine breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know? Well, I also have to ask you about toast because you indicated to me that you had toast for breakfast, and toast is in both of these books. In fact, it's in housekeeping, too. Uh, the notion of lightly buttered toast, often with a little bit of apple. Uh, what, what of this, I mean, again, going back to this question of the horizon that uh, is in housekeeping that reflects likewise in these two books to some degree, uh, is, is toast essentially the ultimate flatland of uh, food? In a way, in, it's also true that it was... Um, I think, at least in the, my culture, you know, it was what someone gave you if you had a fever. It was what, you know, what you would have for breakfast if nobody went to any particular bother about breakfast and so on. It was just the sort of basic 
food that you returned to under when, you know, it was almost fast food. <laughs> I mean, again, going back to the idea of uh, imparting some meaning to the dimensions or the shape of these particular foods, is this something that, uh, that one should do, or is this again a case of uh, some aspect of the world around us, in your case, coming into your novels and uh, suddenly taking on perhaps unexpected reading, meaning, um, an unexpected meaning with me, the reader, uh, looking, looking perhaps for clues and all that. I, I suppose I'm looking for clues because I'm always looking for clues in your particular <laughs> book. But, but uh, I mean, you know, do you, how, how hard do you think about, uh, about a, something like food, for example? I mean, you know, how, what, what amount of thought does that require before you decide, oh, that's an apple? Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, apple pie would be, of course, something that would, you know, you can usually get apples at any time of year and all the rest of it. It's sort of a basic um, pleasure, you know. Um, I, she does quote a psalm that talks about manna and the idea that, that food in its, it, in its nature is, is providential. I mean, God provides it. And that... Um, that eating together is communion in its essence, you know, and and so family meals I think will probably always be important for me in anything that I write about households because, well, because I am who I am, I guess. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you about the degree of dialogue in home versus the lack of dialogue in Gilead. Uh, it's almost as if uh, those who can't. Uh, those who can't do teach in the case of in the case of glory, but also those who can't uh, settle their disputes talk. Uh, uh, I, I do want to get into the predestination dialogue again, but for the moment, uh, I wanted to ask why uh, speech became the natural thing to write about for these characters who are sitting around uh, waiting for things to happen. You've loaded this house, of course, with lots of bric-a-brac. At one point, one of the characters said it reminds me of the old curiosity shop. But it, it is interesting to me how the talk so overwhelms the decor in this particular book. And why did this happen this time around? I mean, there's also the piece of dialogue that I remember from housekeeping with the, uh, the two sisters. But, but uh, this seems to me very much a, a kind of languorous uh, conversational quality in this book. And I, I'm very curious as to, as to why this book is chattier than the other two. <laughs> well, um, I mean, to compare it with housekeeping, of course, it's a... It's a it's a novel about adults. You know, they have histories and questions that they've pondered for years and so on, and they have, in that sense, a greater fluency, you know, talk, to talk about things. Um, as far as Gilead is concerned, I mean, it was important to me that that was a man writing and that everything that, that he said passed through this, uh, you know, his own sort of critical sensibility in terms of what mattered and how it should be described and so on. Um, the and what he was basically trying to do was help his son in a way to see the world and to see the world as sacred. Um, in the case of of um, Jack and Glory, they are people who, in the first instance, are ill at ease with each other, you know, and then over time begin to find, you know, mutual loyalty and common ground and so on. Um, and I think that people do that conversationally. That is to say that I intended to write all that dialogue, which is not really true. The, I was surprised to find how full of dialogue the book was, and I kept trying to sort of steer it in other directions, and it just came back to more dialogue scenes. So, 
Were the characters essentially uh, resisting your impulses to steer them down a very specific narrative? I mean, there is one thing that I that struck me, and um, I read James Wood's review of this book in The New Yorker, and he insisted that the ultimate narrative of the family, based off of the fact that the third-person narrator writes the story of my family, is in fact Jack leaving. But this would seem to me perhaps something of a mistake, because th- there almost is no narrative. The, the whole point is is that there is no narrative with the Boutons, and they are sitting around trying to figure out what it is uh, that narrative is so that they might be able to finally forgive each other for all of their respective sins. And that, to me, is, is, this, is this interesting notion uh, here in the dialogue as well, the idea that, uh, that nobody here can, um, can actually pinpoint what it is uh, until, unless an outsider person, whether it be Teddy or whether it be Ames, actually comes in and sort of shows them the way. Uh, uh, in terms of narrative, uh, or the idea of there being a family narrative, was this specific line that you wrote, the story of this family, a way to kind of throw the reader off or to uh, essentially suggest to them, well, you should probably be paying attention more to what they're saying and what they're doing, as, or what they're not doing in this case, as opposed to what I'm saying as the, as the third person narrator this time. Well, the issue of forgiveness always comes up, and I don't really agree with that as an interpretation of the... Uh, they don't, they don't uh, fault each other. Um, there's a sort of the suggestion in the story that if they wanted to, they could, you know. Um, but they're, they're working at another level. Jack, what matters is Jack is her brother. What matters is that she is his sister, you know. That how to how the the guilt and so on that Jack feels is something that that basically he constructs, and of course it's to his credit that he does. I think a, an active conscience is a good thing, but at the same time, um, Glory would never rebuke him and certainly never talk about anything that he's done in ter- as a, in terms of sin or in terms of forgiveness. I also want to talk again about this predestination dialogue, which comes from Gilead and is and returns here in this book, although this time around we have a few more lines, a few more observations, and it's very interesting to me because the first time around we have a very clear perspective from the point of view of Ames, and this time around, I mean, the first time we think that this dialogue is about Jack essentially hiding some kind of sin that he has. And we aren't quite aware of what that sin is until, of course, the blank page awaits us and we read that last final part, uh, and then things clarify themselves. But in this case, it's interesting because I didn't read it so much in that particular light. Uh, I read it more as a, as a way for him to try to find a justification for how he could possibly connect with his father or find a way to have his father forgive him or be forgiven or whatnot. So... Uh, it's interesting to me because this is an objective third-person approach, supposedly, and yet it brings to light uh, a lot of interpretations, of possible interpretations, which is why I suggested the whole notion of the text at the very beginning of this conversation. Um, was your intent in writing and dwelling upon third-person this time around a way for you to play with the idea of, well, it's not how you interpret the events, it's how you live the events. It's, it's, you can go ahead and look and look and look into a series of actions and eventually you're going to drive yourself insane with all manner of interpretations like this and this is part of the problem in Gilead. <laughs> well, I mean, I, again, I don't consider Jack's relationship with Della or the fathering of the child to be a sin. I consider him to be basically morally superior to the culture he's dealing with at that point. 
The fact is that he could not marry Della because there were laws that prevented it. And um, he, he certainly is in every sense married to her except for the legal sense, you know. I think that he uh, he's so obliquely related to respectable society that he uh, he's not confident. He can't, even though he acts on an impulse that he experiences as good, I mean, he's a, a loving father and an affectionate hus- you know, husband, he... Um, he doesn't have confidence in a society that would forbid him to say, no, you, you society are wrong, you know? And so, I mean, there, there's a, um, an unresolvable conflict in his mind. If there, um, Iowa did not have anti-miscegenation laws. It was one of the few places in the country where he actually could have married Della. He's come back to see if he could live there and could marry her there. And it would depend, basically, on his finding support at home in his family, which he's afraid to ask for. So this idea of him working on the DeSoto in the basement, and this... Suge- the garage. The garage. <laughs> impractical to have a DeSoto. Yeah, you, uh, my apologies. In, in the nether regions of the house, I'm thinking very much towards the horizon, but, but this is interesting to me because if what you are imputing here about that he does not view it to be a sin, I mean, I, I see where you're coming from, but I also am looking at, I guess, this from an objective standpoint as, well, this was considered a sin by the standards of 1956, even though we can look at it 50 years later and say that it is not. But nevertheless, uh, the DeSoto is, is an interesting choice because, of course, it makes me think of Fernando DeSoto and the fact that DeSoto was, the conquistador, was there to conquer North America. So this dormant automobile reflecting that, sitting in the garage, waiting to be refurbished, is almost a way for this family to seize some dormant impulse of acting or taking control or of seizing or of conquering North America, perhaps with some greater enlightenment that's coming in through the television or whatnot, or even from the nation that is coming through the mail or what. Yes, well, it wasn't exactly enlightenment that was coming through the television at that point. I mean, that was... Yeah, I mean, the Enlightenment would come sometime later when figures like Martin Luther King really emerged, you know. I did not associate my DeSoto with that DeSoto. (laughs) I thought of DeSoto as a big kind of plum-shaped vehicle that um, the the family's uh, immobility, I suppose, and the, the, in a certain sense, a frustrated attempt at mobility, to put it in ridiculously absurd terms uh, that's a, you know that is a legitimate thing to think about in terms of that car but but the hopes that are centered on it are small and not continent subject subjugating I want to talk to you about the fact that both books share a secular figure in Gilead you have Edward formerly Edwards, thinking of, of course, the, uh, the great sermon man, uh, who, uh, who was actually Ames's brother. And in this, Teddy, at the very end of the book, uh, who is a secular figure, appears. And it's almost as if you need, in both cases, to show the nature of faith and the nature of religion from this secular standpoint. I wanted to ask you about that. And somewhat in relation to that, I stupidly perhaps thought that like oh well here is Jack and here is here is Teddy uh, are you, were you, is this the beginning of the Kennedys you were talking about 1963 earlier so <laughs> no I wasn't thinking about the Kennedys either 
Um, I don't consider Teddy a secular figure. He's a he's many people who um, were re- strongly strongly religiously motivated became doctors. You know, he simply has not pursued religion as a vocation. Um, there, I think that you know, I mean. Jonathan Edwards, whom we only know because of one sermon, was actually a figure who was very important to the abolitionist movement. They, he, there was a huge recurrence of interest in his thought that was shared among the abolitionists. And so it's a double thing. I mean, on the one hand, at dropping the S on Edwards, he is, uh, you know, sort of jettisoning the rigor of that tradition, but he's also jettisoning the reformist side of that tradition. Those two things are simultaneous, you know. So there's a knife edge, you know. I mean, the people that came out into the Middle West in the abolitionist movement, including John Brown, a good sort of congregational Presbyterian, were often treated as fanatics. But on the other hand, look look at the seriousness of the problem, you know. And so on the one hand, we might be kind of shocked by the passion and the judgmental quality that their thought often had. On the other hand, where would we be now if they had not done what they did then, you know? So, um, these things, I mean, I don't claim to know how to sort this out, but nevertheless, these simultaneities occur and are important. These, these characters may be secular in comparison to the very pious religious nature of the other family members. But this is an interesting distinction here because we're seeing very devout education, perhaps in combination with this faith uh, gets around and helps other people. Uh, is, it, is it the suggestion here then that that particular contrast can sort of show the dangers of whether you fall too hard into into either education or secularism or religion, uh, where you become, you're listening to a book about Africa, you're dwelling upon how all the elephants are fantastic at the expense of the fact that you are very real people who you are being racist about, you know? Yeah. Well, it wasn't certainly um, any monopoly of the religious people that, that they were insensitive to issues of that kind. Yeah. And the whole country was, and the whole country had been for a long time, you know. And the the people, I mean, one of the reasons that Jack comes back to Iowa and has this sort of fascination with Ames and so on is that the the 19th century abolitionists certainly knew about the humanity of black people. I mean, they created integrated colleges before they existed anywhere else on earth. Um, and the there's some, I mean, there's some strange impulse, I think, to associate hypocrisy with religion when in fact hypocrisy is so broadly shared in any population that it can't be associated with anybody exclusively. I also wanted to ask you about the character names too. Ames, of course, connotes Amen and uh, Boughton or Bots On. I'm wondering uh, uh, how much thought you put into these characters' names. I mean, uh, in fact, until Ames actually said uh, Amen in Home, suddenly I made the connection like, oh, of course, aims, amen. But, but then, of course, there's the whole bot notion of this. Did you have a very clear idea of what the uh, the, the Botten family situation was in Gilead, or was it something that, that came in the act of writing uh, home? Well, um, I never had associated aims with amen. I had done a lot of research about the uh, people that came into the Middle West who tended to come from New England or upstate New York, 
and Ames was a very common name among them. It goes in, among Puritans in England also. So it was just an available name for me, you know. Boughton is the name of a, a very good friend of my grandfather's, whom I remember from my childhood, and who physically and so on the character of Boughton is actually modeled on. So I don't, I didn't intend either name to be interpreted otherwise than as one that was historically plausible or one that had the special associations in my memory. For this larger interpretation of a sentence in your book, is it really not so much about a name or the food that I was mentioning earlier, that it's more about the modifier or the theme or the atmosphere that uh, it may be a mistake for a reader of my type who is constantly sort of trying to look for everything in, in a book that has so much going on that really it's kind of folly to, to delve into this or is this a case where you abdicate such interpretations to the reader? Um, well, you know, one does abdicate. That's called publication. <laughs> uh, at the same time, I mean, just to return briefly to Boughton's family, you know, when um, Ames is writing to his son, he's re- writing to an imagined adult who can turn out any any way, you know, who knows? Uh, who knows what his experience will be f- from the time that Ames ceases to be able to protect his household and so on. Um, in Boughton's case, you know, if you have eight children, the odds go way up <laughs> if you see them grow to adulthood that their lives will become complicated in one way or another. So I don't, I mean, you have, you know, he has six highly presentable children. He has a seventh daughter who, God love her, you know, had some bad experience. And then he had Jack, the mystery, the one he never could quite somehow father successfully. I don't consider this to be a judgment on his household at all. I think it's just a human family. We're talking about the notion of judgment, of which you have written in essays uh, quite a lot about. This, I suppose, is, is something of a risk to whether a literary critic or a reader looking at your book and judging these characters based off of uh, either a sliver of a perspective in the first two novels that you wrote, or in this, where we're presented with the objective data, uh, and yet inevitably we must judge based off of uh, some the series of fact. Is this something that you worry about, or is this... I- I, I write something because it's on my mind, you know, and I don't, I mean, I've done some, you know, I have written about two girls in Idaho. I've written about plutonium manufacture. I've written about Calvinism. These are not things that you actually write about if you are deciding how to deal with the general public, because the odds are very great that you will never have a general public, you know. Um, in any case, I I don't know. People ask about the writer-reader relationship, but I I don't think about a public when I'm writing. I write what seems, what what I want to, basically. Who who knows why I want to, where this desire comes from, but that's what I do. Oh, actually, I, want, I had to ask about Jack's Marxism. I know that you once read all the works referenced in Das Kapital uh, in the footnotes. And with Jack, there's this suggestion that he is something of a Marxist. And, of course, we were talking about The Nation earlier, which is, which is actually tagged in both particular books. But going back to this question of, of Jack reading the African book, I found this to be uh, the African history book. I found this to be a very interesting notion that here's a guy 
who receives a progressive journal, The Nation, in the mail, yet simultaneously believes in this pious nature. And then, of course, you have Jack's Marxism. So the, the notion here, the suggestion here, is that uh, where one stands politically in relation to understanding and being open-minded towards all human beings really does not matter in the end. Well, for one thing, The Nation actually began to be published after the Civil War, and it was a way of sort of consolidating political activism and opinion and so on as it had formed through the, the Civil War. But if you read, read it over time, you find that it embraced lots of things that were considered to be progressive at the time that we would be very upset about now, you know. So the people in the Middle West, the people that descended from those, that settlement, they tended to be Republican out of loyalty. They read the nation out of loyalty. You know what I mean? It was, uh, the, but the gravitations that occurred in both of these things were not consistent with the earlier values that had originated them, you know. Um, and this is something that simply happens all the time, this kind of indiscernible slide that occurs so that what was progressive ceases to be progressive, and you know. The, uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is this notion of your work being interpreted as old-fashioned. I also know that you have a Blackberry, and I'm wondering <laughs> if uh, this idea of writing in a more Emersonian tone as opposed to using perhaps a technology that is omnipresent today. You said earlier that you write essentially what you want to write. Is there no notion of time or literary antecedents in what you write today or what you write in, whether on a Blackberry or whether at a typewriter or a computer or whatnot? Well, I, I think that I, I'm very aware of literary antecedents, actually, including yes, Emerson. I, I, <laughs> um, I don't, you know, when you're writing your thinking recedes into a very, very deep interior part of the mind. And um, I suppose that, that, you know, I have always read 19th century American literature especially, but also Faulkner and Wallace Stevens and so on. The, that particular vein of literature is just profoundly gratifying and interesting to me. I don't... A lot of contemporary writing can move toward parody because of um, an unease with the kind of used quality that a great deal of contemporary language has, the fact that it's been commodified or whatever, you know, uh, in any case overused in many cases. And um, I, don't, I have no impulse toward parody, and I think that that is probably the, the, the strongest sort of immunization that a lot of, of contemporary writing takes toward the fact that the language has been put to very particular uses in, the, in our modern period. Um, I would rather just reach back before that and try to find the words with a greater degree of, you know, of their own sort of integrity with, when they had no marketing associations or anything like that, when they hadn't been through the news cycle 25,000 times. Yeah. Do you feel essentially that contemporary literature is essentially damaging the early integrity, the early strengths of language and expressions and ideas and the like because uh, it's become this parody that there is no hope to restore it unless you actually go back to the very beginning? I wouldn't say that. I'm just using, I mean, it's a strategy that's necessary to me because I like to feel that the words that I use are as close to being my own as, as they can be, you know. I think that there's a lot of, there's a need for detachment from the particulars of contemporary life that parody or whatever is a perfectly honorable strategy. It's just not mine. 
Marilyn, thanks very much for taking the time. That was a pleasure chatting with you. I enjoyed it Won't very much. Won't you please come home? Cause your dad is all alone. I tried so hard in vain. Never no more to call your name. When you left, you broke my heart. Oh, darling, why? Why do we have to part? Cause every hour.